All right, let's jump in. So we are in the third week of our series, The Gospel Colored Glasses. And what we're talking about in this series, how it's important, is when we become believers, when we develop that relationship with Jesus Christ, that relationship is not contained to one little portion of our lives. Right now, in this day and age, we like to do that. We like to kind of box everything up. And that's why you have so many people that get nervous when their lives collide. Have you ever seen somebody nervous about like their work friends meeting their church friends? Right? Or, or their family meeting their work friends? Right? Why do they get nervous about that? Because there's a completely different way they act in one environment compared to the other. And they're terrified of those two worlds colliding and somebody realizing, oh, you're not who you always pretend to be. You're somebody different. And so a lot of folks, when they first start coming to church, when they first start getting the relationship with God, they do this silly thing and go, well, being a Christian involves what happens to me between the hours of 9 and 11 on Sunday morning, or if you come to our church, 9, 12, 30, 45, something like that, whenever I wrap up. And that's it. The rest of the week, the rest of the time, I'm just like everybody else. And so in this book, 1 Corinthians, what Paul is doing is he's writing to this church that he's planted in the city of Corinth. And he's talking to them about how they're making mistakes. And he starts breaking through these mistakes that are happening, but most of them are occurring because they've tried to do this division of life. They've tried to be Christians in one atmosphere, and then they've tried to embrace the culture from the rest of their lives. And Paul is writing them going, it doesn't work. You're a divided person, and it doesn't lead to success. And so throughout this book, in love, he's writing to them and going, guys, get it together. You have to to live your life a different way. And so to kind of catch you up if you haven't been here, here's what we've talked about over the last two weeks. The first thing is, is the church is united in the word. And so the first thing he gets mad at them about is they're all arguing about style. Right, when he's hearing back from the pe people in Corinth, everybody's arguing about, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Cephas. And who these guys are different pastors. And so what you have is not doctrinal debates, because don't get me wrong, if there are big doctrinal debates, right? If we're arguing about whether salvation is earned or given, then yes, we should talk about that. But if we're talking about whether or not you like to sing a hymn or you want to sing something written the last few years, um, those things, we've got to get past those differences and come together. Amen. And so what the Corinthians are arguing about is style points. I like this pastor, well, I like this pastor, or I like this pastor. And, and Paul goes, guys, we are united in the Word. If they're all preaching the gospel and they're all pointing towards Jesus, then get over it. Amen. If we're a family and we're united by the blood of Christ, then style points are not what we care about. We care about being one. Amen. And how do we know what are the things that we should debate and talk about? We should know based on whether it's in the word or not. Right? If we're talking about how to get to heaven and there's an argument there, well, this book has quite a bit to say about that. So this is our standard. When it comes to whether we should sing hymns or Chris Tomlin, no book addresses that in here. So we can get past that one. We can find a way to let love lead us in those moments. The second thing he talked about is not only are these folks divided because of these style points, but they're divided because they're at war with the culture around them. Right? What he has is he has people who have one, one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and then they're being pulled apart and they don't understand it. And so Paul goes, not only are you divided internally, 
But now you're divided because these external forces are pushing in on you. And you guys are trying to be worldly Christians. That doesn't work. Those two worlds, those two philosophies, do not value anything the same. One points you towards the need for money, and for sex, and for lust, and for fame, and for popularity, and material possessions. And the other says, you don't need any of those things. You need love, and peace, and joy, and patience, and kindness, and goodness. And so if these two worlds collide, it leads to emptiness. This is why, brothers and sisters, it has always been so shocking to me why the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel fools so many people. Jesus does not care about you being rich. He does not. Not from money in your pockets. In fact, there's some of you, you don't want to hear this, he will actively work to make you not rich. Because some of you, he knows you're fools. And he knows if you gave you lots of money, you'd do dumb things with it. So the best blessing of your life is, is that you won't be rich. Because if you were rich, you'd mess things up bad. And if you ever want proof of that, just go read the stories about all the people who win the lottery. I think it's like 60% of them end up going bankrupt. Right, if you ever talk to those people before they won the lottery, they told you, you're going to win the lottery. I guarantee they sit there and tell you, oh my gosh, all my problems are fixed. Then they win the lottery and they end up in a worse position than they were before. Why? Because what the world offers doesn't solve your real problems. Amen. Right? It gives you instant filling. It gives you an instant enjoyment. But it leaves you empty in the long term. Amen. And so the table that's been set for us is be united in the word and understand you cannot be worldly Christians. Amen. If you're a Christian, you have to embrace the culture that Christ has created and realize it is at odds with the culture that surrounds you. And if you try to put a foot in each camp, you're going to be divided throughout your life. It's not going to bring you joy. And so today we're going to jump forward, and we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So go ahead and flip with me there. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And here Paul's going to step on some more toes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet, yet, yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Let's break down a couple things that he's saying to us here. The first point that he's getting to, and this is a huge thing for us to understand, is he's asking the Corinthians the question, how are you growing? Yesterday was baby girl's uh, first birthday party. Can't believe it's been a year. 
Um, it's been enjoyable to watch all of the changes occur and watch her become her own little human being. But about three weeks ago, the worst moment happened. Three weeks ago, we're sitting in the living room. Uh, everybody's hungry, it's dinner time. And we had just ordered pizza, which is awesome because I love pizza, right? And we're sitting there, we got her, her food, she's all taken care of. We're sitting there and we start to eat and we hear her go, ah! which is they're like, I'm hungry, take care of me. It's a great noise, it's so pleasant, right? And I'm looking at her like, you've got your food, what, what's the issue? And so I, you know, dice up a little bit more turkey for, set her aside, starting my pizza here. <clears throat> she doesn't want her food anymore. She wants my pizza. <laughs> it's that terrible moment where your little infant child now realizes you've been feeding them tasteless junk <laughs> for their whole entire life, and there's this whole world of flavor, and they want the flavor. And I realized from that moment there would be no more pizza nights where Daddy could sit there by himself eating pizza. I would now have a little one sitting on my lap also eating my pizza. <laughs> what had happened was over time she matured. Right when she started, she's drinking milk, and that's her only form of food. But then her abilities change, and she can chew, and then she gets teeth, and then she discovers flavor, and all of a sudden, this little infant decides, I want to eat food like a big person. Well, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's like, unfortunately, you guys spiritually are like babies who are still drinking milk. Right? Like, I don't want to throw judgment, but do you ever see those kids with a bottle at the store, and you're like, he's still drinking a bottle? Are you serious? <laughs> like, what's going on here? He's seven. Like, when they can make their own bottle, you got an issue, right? When they go to the kitchen and make it, probably time to let the bottle go. Paul's writing the Corinthians, and he's like, guys, I planted you and built you, and I get it. You were in a culture that didn't point you to God. Right? Remember, this is not a Jewish church. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't have the knowledge of Yahweh. They don't know the Ten Commandments. They don't have the base foundation of this is all about love God, love people. They're starting from scratch. So Paul understands that, and he gives them grace in that. But now he's writing to them years later, and he's going, guys, you're still on the basics. Are you serious? I plant you. I put you on the path. I give you the word. And now I, I hear back from you years later. And you guys are still arguing about what style of preaching you like? You guys are supposed to be changing the world. You're supposed to be light in the midst of darkness. You're supposed to be love in a world of hate. You're supposed to be changing the people around you. And instead, you're still in the church arguing about, well, I don't like that kind of style of preaching. He's always negative. Why can't you be more upbeat? I'd be inspired when I leave church. He goes, you haven't grown. Years have passed and you're still babies and you're still drinking milk. Why? By this point, you should be eating solid foods. And so brothers and sisters, I pose the same question to you. How are you grown? If I were to rewind time and take you from that very moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I was to put you with who you are right now, would we just see leaps and bounds of growth? Would you sit there and realize the amount that you understand about this book, the depth that you've pulled out of it, your intimacy and your relationship with God, the depth of your prayer life, where we look at all those things and go, oh my goodness, 
I was so immature back then. I was telling the kids today in, in youth group, I still have my first sermon I ever recorded. Uh, say, our first sermon I ever gave recorded. I hate listening to it. I can't stand it. And I'm like, what were you doing, Grapeless? You thought that was a good point? Oh my, I, I just can't. I just, it's hard to listen to. And what's funny is I don't think anybody back then who was sitting in the pew thought it was terrible. I'm not sure they thought it was good, but I don't think they thought it was terrible. But I, sitting now, knowing what I know, feel, man, there was so much more I could have done with that. There was so much more I could have, I could have put into that. And I hope, I sincerely hope, that when I'm 60 and I'm listening to this sermon, I go, oh my goodness, Luke, what were you doing? Because I'm hoping that each day, each week, each month, each year, I'm getting better. Yeah. Amen. And you know what's funny? We expect this in every other facet of our lives. Right? Like if you raise kids, you're constantly aware of this. You're not cool with your kid being the same at five as they were at four, the same at six as they were at five. Right? You just always want to see growth. And in fact, we'll do anything and throw up red flags if we realize our kid's locked up. Well, that's not right. We've got to do something here. Right? At work, most of your employers are measuring you, and they don't want to see you just stay stable every year. They want to see you improve, and they want to see you grow. And if they don't, they work with you. In your own hobbies, you typically want to be better and to excel. But somehow, when it comes to church, we go, oh, I'm safe. I'm good. <coughs> Because we moved the finishing point. This is glorified fire insurance. People are not here to be in an intimate, loving relationship with Jesus Christ that changes every single second of their life. They're here in case they die, they get to go to the good place. Which means for most of us, the benefit of Christianity only comes after the one thing we're all trying not to do. Die. And if that's your mentality, of course you're not pouring into this. Of course you're not giving effort to this. I work at an insurance company. Do you know how many people are excited to write us a check each month? How many of you, when you're paying your bills, are like, yes, bill time. So excited. Isn't that sad when you get that money on payday and then you just watch it all disappear in like 15 seconds? Right? It's like, oh, okay. No. Oh, okay, we're left with enough to barely get by. Nobody gets excited about paying their insurance because you only have it because you feel like you have to. And that's how people treat Christianity. That's why they don't grow. We treat like the end point was the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. From then on, just waiting to die. That is never, ever what Jesus does. Have you ever wondered as you flip through these pages why there's so little about heaven in it? Right? Like, who can sit there and describe to me the house we're going to live in in heaven? Who can tell me whether we're going to play sports or whether there's going to be animals or what our romantic relationships are going to be? Or are we going to have romantic relationships? How many can tell me, will we sleep or not sleep? Will we sing all day? Nobody knows. And do you know why? It's not the selling point. The selling point is God. Amen. The selling point is Christ. Amen. The selling point is the Holy Spirit that lives in you Amen. each and every moment. In fact, what God was so excited about is he was saying, look, if you love me and you trust me, you don't need to worry about heaven because I've taken care of it. Amen. 
Amen. The basic message of having the Christians is Jesus goes, I've prepared a place for you. That's all you need to know. I took care of it. And we should have enough love and trust in him that if he looks at us and goes, I got it. We don't worry about it yet. Because we know he's got it. And so brothers and sisters, I'm going to challenge you. If you're sitting there and the real honest to goodness truth is you haven't changed since the moment you got saved. Or you haven't changed since who you were last year. I'm betting that in your mind you have shifted to thinking about Christianity as, well, I'm saved. I'm good. And that's why there's not a passion in you. Because you think you've done what you need to do. People who realize that there is this amazing, awesome God that loves you. And that the beauty that he has is limitless. You can never fully grasp all of it. They never get tired of chasing him. Because what they learn is every time they think they understand him, there's just more beauty more power, more love awaiting you. It's why I tell you sometimes I look back at those old sermons and, and kind of laugh because in the years I've realized new truths from God that add so much beauty to the things I was looking at in the past. Like don't get me wrong, they weren't beautiful with that smaller lens, they were still beautiful, but now I see like this and I go, my goodness, this picture. It's unbelievable things that he's doing. Are you growing? Each day are you growing? And let me just get one other little point on this. Brothers and sisters, the way growth occurs is baby step after baby step after baby step. It's not large leaps. Right, so many Christians, I feel like living that stuff, is, is it's in the big moments that they really want to be faithful. Right? It's when someone dies or when they got to make a decision like, should I take a new job or should I get married or should I move? Right? It's in those moments they're like, now I need you, God. Now I need you. Now I want to make a spiritual decision. Now I want to make a faithful decision. And then they're confused because they don't know how to do it. Well, guys, that's not how it works. Right? When it's the ninth inning of the World Series and you need to score a home run, you don't pull some guy who hasn't hit a ball in two years and put him at the plate. I mean, could he? I guess. Maybe. It'd be miraculous. Instead, you take someone who every day has been swinging the bat. Every day has been hitting the ball. Every day has been practicing. Every day has been working for that one moment. And no, has he ever been in that exact moment? No. But he's been in a lot of little ones like it. And all of those have built up this moment that make us go, you know what? I think you might be able to do it. If you're waiting for that moment, someone walks up to you and goes, tell me about Jesus, because I want to get saved. One, I doubt it's going to happen. And two, even if it does, you're probably not going to know what to do if every single day of your life you haven't been working to put Christ into your conversations. Amen. You've got to practice. You've got to grow. And you've got to realize that every single day you are literally given thousands of opportunities to be the reflection of Jesus Christ. Every day. And most of us, we drive right by. And then we'll sit at home at night and go, where was God today? I could have used him. He was there the whole way and you were just ignoring him. Amen. How are you growing? 
look at this verse. It says, for through by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. From evil. Hebrews 5.12. What's he saying? How do you go out into this world to know what's what? By being in the Word. Amen. Daily. Constantly. Practicing. It's why I'm so sad that there's so many of you who will watch sermons on TV that have nothing to do with the Word of God. And you will nod your heads and say amen and go, that's awesome. And they're preaching foolishness. You think because there's a title pastor in front of their name that that means they actually know something. I pray that the moment I ever start preaching the false gospel, God forbid it ever happened, that this entire church would stand up and go, that's wrong, brother. Because you know the word. You know it. Too many of us have trusted others to do it. We've become spectators in a faith that Christ died to make you participants in. How dare we? Are you growing? There's a second thing he brings up here, and it's an interesting one because I, I think we've got this weird, tiered structure when it comes to Christianity. You notice as he's talking here in this passage in chapter 3, he moves right from being a Christian into this topic of service. And when he's talking about serving, he's not talking just to the elders. Right? He's talking to the entire church. I'll be real with you. When I became a pastor, I've shared this before. There was like this realization. I was talking to one of my friends, and they were like, you know now, like, you've got a list of like all the rules. I'm like, if you're a pastor, you can't skip some of them. Right? Like, you've got to listen to all of them. And then we were sitting there talking, we're like, that's kind of true for everybody. We really probably shouldn't live that way. Right? Like, nowhere in the Bible do you ever read something that's like, love thy enemy if you're a pastor. But if you're just a regular congregation member, it's okay to just dislike them. <laughs> right? That's never in the book. Nowhere do we find like separate sets of, of, of values and behaviors for pastors and deacons and then here for the regular people. It doesn't happen. All of them are for everyone. And so it's this interesting thing that we realize that like service isn't for super Christians. It's for all Christians. All Christians are called to serve. And so he moves from this topic of like, are you guys growing? Are you becoming more mature? Right into like, are you serving? Are you doing anything for the kingdom? And so look what he says. He starts by describing one, realize that there's no pride in this. Right? Apollos, Paul, we're all part of the same process. Amen. Right? We may have different bits of work, but they all get pieced together, and they all produce results, not because of us, but because of who? Because of God. Right? So he uses this farming analogy. I was the one that planted the seed, Apollos came and watered it. It's the only reason any fruit grew, because of God. Amen. Right? So he starts to paint this picture for us, but look what he's saying. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Who gives the opportunity? God does. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. Brothers and sisters, do you understand how the Lord says? That you and I get to look at God and go, that's my family. <coughs> that the Almighty God, the one that created the universe, the one that shapes human life, the one that knows no limits to his power, love, and perfection, looks at you and me, who I mean this in all love, are idiots, and goes, you want to come to work with me? Do you want to do something of eternal value? Do you want to change the world? Do you want to go find the lost and bring them into a world of love and security and safety? That he looks at me and offers me that chance, I don't understand. Like, honestly, the, the craziest part of the entire New Testament to me is not any of the mirac miracles that Jesus does. It's that when you hear who the 12 disciples are, he goes, he trusted the future of the church with those guys? Really? Those guys? Yes. Because as a loving father, he does not come to take from us. He comes to give to us. Amen. He is constantly inviting us into this glory. Yes. And that's the saddest part for people that have treated Christianity as it's like, get saved and then you're done. You're missing the very best. The very best is each and every day walking on the path with God. And each and every day, God giving you the power, the ability, and the opportunity to do things that you have no business doing. Amen. When you feel God work through you, It is a feeling. I told you before, like, I, as a young man, I don't want to be a pastor. They work cool, they don't make a lot of money, and it's not a cool job. It just, it's not that appealing to me. But then you know what happened? I started doing the work and was like, that is the most amazing feeling in the entire world. When I'm doing this, I feel like in this moment, I'm doing exactly what God built me to do. Amen. And no other feeling gives me that. Like right now, at this moment, I'm doing what God wants me to do. That's cool. I enjoy that. It's a feeling I get nowhere else, and I can't believe he lets me do it. Yeah. I mean, trust me, the responsibility I get at work is far less than this. At work, they would never give me this kind of responsibility. Because they would look at my resume, and they would look at all these kind of things, and go, sorry, son, not happening. God looks at me and goes, here you go, son, go. And so he transitions right into this. Are you serving? What are you doing? Now look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward, and if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so through a fire. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying the ultimate judgment of our value, of our work, comes as a standard test of time. 
Right? It's easy to build up fluffy stuff, but when real pressure comes, when the real fire of life comes, does the work hold up? Or does it get burned away? And so not only is what Paul referring to here is that each and every one of us should be looking to serve, but each and every one of us should be looking to serve with quality. We should be working to not just put in our time, but to do so with such an excellence that what we build on top of the foundation of Christ stands. Stands firm and strong. And he tells us, like, look, this isn't about salvation, guys. Your foundation in Christ, that will stand. That's always going to stand. But is that the bare minimum? Is that what you're going for? Is your hope to just be saved? Or do you desire and hunger for more? Amen. If you want more, then serve. And if you're serving, serve with excellence so that we'll stand the pressure and time. Amen. That's what he's urging these people to do. Look what it says in Galatians 5.13. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because people go, well, if Christianity is all about freedom, then why are you guys so, so bent on being the servants of God? If, you, if you're free, if, he, if he's released you from sin, if he's paid your debts, if he's put you out there, why then do you run right back to servitude? Because of love. See, everyone else who's ever made me a servant has done it out of force. Everybody else has ever made me a servant or a slave they, because they came in, they pushed me down, they pushed me into the ground, and they made me. Two opposing forces met and won one. That's not this servitude. This servitude is as I was being crushed. My Savior came in and pulled me out of that rubble mm -hmm. and said, son, do whatever you wish. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to follow you. I want to go wherever you go. I want to be wherever you are. And let's be real, if you've ever been in love, you totally understand that emotion. Right, where's home for me? Home is wherever my wife and kids are. Growing up, I moved every 18 months, at least. Just crazy life. And so it's interesting because when people have always asked me, like, so where are you from? I don't really know how to answer. I mean, I don't tell them Indiana because that's where I was born and I spent a good amount of years there, but I, I don't know. And honestly, the truth is I didn't really care. Home is where Jim and Kim Gray was from. Home is where my brothers Reed, Cole, and my sister Tessa were. Wherever they were, whatever house that was, whatever address that was, that's home. Because home isn't a place. It's people. It's love. And to be honest, as I've gotten older, I love that. I love that from a very early age, that was a truth I understood, was that home isn't a place, it's these people, and it's the love that keeps these relationships together. And that's what Jesus is saying to you. <coughs> Do you love me enough that you'll come wherever I ask you to come? I serve him not because I have to, because I want to. Because nothing else brings me fulfillment and joy like serving him. One last point. How are you being used by God? 
And you may go, wait, wait, didn't we just talk about services and the same thing? No, it's slightly different. It's slightly different because all of us have talents and abilities, and all of us can use our talents and abilities to build the kingdom. But being used by God is a different thing. Being used by God means that you aren't here in control going, well, I'm good at these things. I will, with intention and purpose, do this. Being used by God means you give up control. Being used by God means you go, Father, I give to you all I am and all I have. Use me as you wish. And see, the beauty of being used by God versus using your talents is when you're used by God, you can accomplish things you can't in your ability. Why? Because he's a master. He's a master. So you can give him a poor tool, and he can still use it to do unbelievable and amazing things. Why? Because he has the talent and ability to do it. When we talk about using our talents, that's us using what we're already good at. We can dictate that. We, we know what we're good at, and we can repeat that on regular. But when we are used by him, when we're in his hands, my goodness, that's when he can do good things. I'll be honest, sometimes I see this as a pastor. Sometimes I will walk out of here, and I'll tell my wife, I'm like, that was the worst sermon I've ever given. I don't even know what I was doing up there. It was a mess. I'm just... I can't stand it. I can't even listen to it or critiquing it at all. And also, some people come to me like, that was the best sermon ever. You were speaking right to me. And I'm like, you got anything out of that? And it wasn't because it was a good sermon. It was because God used those pathetic words that I used to speak to that person's heart. And even though what I was saying probably didn't make sense to 99% of you, to that 1% that he wanted to talk to, he used those words to speak to them. When he's using you, he can take what seems to not be enough and make it enough. This is why he says this. He goes, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. I'm sorry, let me fast forward a bit. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God? Dwells in you. What does that mean? It means you are more than you. Amen. Right? All the limitations that you're aware of of you, those exist. But you now have a power source in you that is beyond those. The creator of the universe lives in you. And he can do things with you you couldn't imagine. You are his temple and he lives there. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, but they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What is he saying? He's saying if you're God's instrument, there's no room for arrogance. Because you realize everything that you have, everything you're doing, was divine by God. And so brothers and sisters, those are three huge questions you've got to ask yourself. 
What are you growing? Each and every day are you growing? Second, are you serving? Have you taken those talents and abilities that God has given you and you found a way to put them to work for the kingdom? And third, are you being used by God? Are you in an intimate enough relationship with Him where you know His voice? You have submitted yourself into His hands and you know that He is the one directing your steps. Are you doing those three things? If you're not, it's going to feel like something is missing. I'll leave you with uh, one last quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. An amazing pastor and just an amazing person. God used this man in so many different ways. He said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. That's beautiful. You know what he's saying? So many of us have boiled Christianity down to a list of rules. <coughs> we, we had a list of rules and we're like, let's just not break any rules. It's a terrible way to live. And it will never lead you to excellence. He's like, look, I'm not telling you, break the rules. But how about you be consumed with living a godly life? Amen. How about you be consumed with living in such a way that you change the world? Amen. Like, brothers and sisters, we see this. No great football team. Like, I doubt next week when the Super Bowl is played that Bill Belichick's going to walk into the Patriots locker room and go, guys, the focus today is to break, make no penalties. How we will be successful today is zero penalties. Right? That trophy at the end of that game is not going to be given to the team that made the least amount of penalties. It's going to be given to the team that scored the most points. So many Christians are so consumed with, let me not break any rules, that they never enjoy the excellence that God brings into their lives. God's not here to restrain you. <laughs> God's not some angry old man with a list of rules that are there to prevent you from having fun. God has come to break the chains of this world off your arms, and he has set you on a path so that you can run faster and farther than you ever had before. He's come to empower you to live a life that you couldn't dare live without him. And it's when you've tasted that that you go, there's no way you can prime me from this eye. It's when you ran with him like that, where you have courageously lived in his will. You have felt that joy. You have felt that excitement that you go, he, you're going to have to kill me to take me from this side. That's what you got to taste. That's what you've got to experience. Stop trying to not sin. And start trying to live in the presence of God. Amen. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just thank you that you love us in such an amazing way. Amen. Father, that you looked down upon us who have fallen and sinned and turned away from you. That you loved us so much that you are willing to send your one and only son to this earth to die on the cross to pay our debts. It is beyond understanding. Father, not only did you then wash us clean of our sins, but you then gave us the choice work with you. 
be your partner to help you build this kingdom. Father, we thank you that you have made us part of your family. And that, Father, you get to use us to bring love into this world. Father, we love you. We serve you.